Imagine yourself an ancient traveler visiting a city in the first century in the world of the Roman Empire. As you approach this city, you immediately recognize it's far beyond anything you had ever seen. The city boasts a population of roughly 250,000 people. And as you get closer to the city, you see the architectural achievements. There is statutes and monuments and temples. The temples are everywhere. It seems like on every street, there's another temple dedicated to another god or goddess. As you make your way into the city proper, immediately you're interrupted by a merchant. And the merchant pulls you aside and says, stranger, open your hand, and he places a scroll into your hand. And he begins to try to sell you something called Ephesian grammata. And what these are are scrolls that have secret words in them. And if you were to say these secret words, the Ephesian grammata promised you specific powers that corresponded to these secret rolls, to the secret scrolls. So the first one, he says, if you have this, you will be guarded from evil demons. And then he puts another scroll, stranger, into your hand. This one will give you the protection of holy angels. And he immediately can see that you're not very interested. You're kind of trying to get away. It's one of those awkward moments. He says, stranger, stop, stop, stop. This scroll is a love scroll. If you say the name of the woman you desire and then speak the secret words found in this scroll, she will immediately fall in love with you. She will be yours, if you have the money. You say, thanks, but no thanks, because your eyes are sort of fixed upon this one temple. Although there's many temples, there is one that's like on a platform on a hill that's greater than any temple your eyes have ever seen. And you start making your way to it, but before you can get there, you're interrupted by another merchant. And this merchant sells stranger, says stranger, here, would you like to buy one of our idols in the image of the goddess Artemis? And you ask, is, is, is this the goddess whose temple's on the hill? And he says, yes, yes. And every one of us here in Ephesus, we carry one of these to watch over us, to give us strength and power, and to remind ourselves of the queen of heaven. She is our goddess and our savior. Now, you immediately aren't interested. You kind of just want to go check the temple out. And so he can see that, and he sees that your eye contact is about to break, so he pulls you aside. Stranger, listen, let me tell you the story of the queen of heaven, our Artemis. Many, many years ago, a ball of fire appeared in the sky and many people followed the ball of fire and eventually that ball of fire came landing down right here on Ephesian soil. And when the ball of fire cooled down, what was left was a solid black stone. This was a gift from Jupiter. It was the sacred stone of Artemis given to the people of Ephesus by Jupiter himself. We still, to this day, have this stone. It's located in her temple. And so if ever you doubt the power, the might, or love or affection that Artemis has for the people of Ephesus, you go to her temple and behold her sacred stone. Would you like to buy an idol? Uh, Still not interested, so you make your way up to the temple, and as you're leaving him, he calls out to you and says, one last thing, stranger, stranger, don't forget, while you're here in Ephesus, if for some reason you get in trouble, you get in a fight and people are after you, know that here in Ephesus, you can always run to the temple complex of Artemis. There is a garden there, a grove of trees, 
And if you run there, you are given asylum, you are given protection. It is a place of refuge. No harm can come to you in the presence of Artemis. She will grant you protection. Say, okay, well, I don't really plan on getting in trouble while I'm here. I'm not trying to start any fights or anything. Now, as you make your way up to this massive temple complex, you turn around and look out at the rest of the city, and then you get a strong feeling for what's actually going on here. This city is filled with life. There's abundance. There's wealth. Like everything under the sun is located here. There is art. There is music. There is theater. There is both good and bad. Whatever your heart may desire, it can be found here in Ephesus. Now, we kicked off this series last week, and we talked about how the book of Revelation begins with seven letters that are written to seven churches. Jesus himself has words for seven churches that are located in a region called Asia Minor. The first recipient of words from Christ himself is the city of Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, the Christians that are located in Ephesus. And the words that Christ gives to this church are very short. There's not a lot. But when you understand the complexity surrounding the city of Ephesus, so many things will begin to rise to the surface. So, some things of Ephesus. As we mentioned, it's a place filled with temples to gods and goddesses. We know from the archaeological evidence, the the literary references in in the literature, from statutes, monuments, all the evidence that we could compile, that at minimum, there was at least 50 different gods and goddesses that were worshipped in Ephesus. And their temples, their shrines, their idols, they're everywhere a minimum of 50 gods and goddesses worshipped in the city. Now, the chief of those, the like, the one that was adored the most was Artemis. This is a picture that is probably near identical to the figurines or idols that were, be, that were sold by that merchant 2,000 years ago. Now, one of the things that always draws people's attention is this, the weird kind of shapes that are on the chest. Um, People debate about whether those are, are, are breasts or eggs or some type of fruit, but here's the point. Whatever the scholarly debate is, Artemis is depicted with symbols of fertility. She's the one who brings fertility. She is the one who brings life. She is the one that gives protection and refuge. Her temple in Ephesus looks like this. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, you have to stop and think about this. I mean, just before you even look at the top, the actual temple itself, look at the sides. Think about you're on a hill, and then there's this massive, massive platform, stair after stair after stair, exalting the temple. Now, one of the things that's, that's important to note about architecture like this is it imposes itself upon you. If you are a citizen of Ephesus, there is nothing you can do to escape her temple. She is ever-present watching over you. See, modern people, we, we don't think about what architecture is doing as much as we should. This is a religious structure that casts a shadow over every citizen. It imposes itself on you. And the religious architecture is telling a story. And you live under it. Now, to give you a little a taste of how important Artemis was to the city of Ephesus. There's a story in the book of Acts I'd like to briefly go over. The book of Acts is is a book recording the the actions of the first followers of Jesus after his life, death, and resurrection. Acts chapter 19 says this. 
About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way is referring to Christians. Christ claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. So likely with in the, the early church, there was people calling Christians the way based off, the, based off of Jesus' saying. Verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who had silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. In other words, there's a guy, he gets all of his friends together, they have a business, and they're like, dude, you guys are seeing what Christianity is doing. This is a threat to our gods and goddesses, but more importantly, or maybe not more importantly to them, but at least very important, it's not only a threat to our gods, it's a threat to our money. Picture the merchant selling little idols. What's going to happen to his business if the city becomes Christian? And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. These Christians, they're, they're destroying our economic situation. They're destroying the religious stability of our community. And there's a threat to the great goddess Artemis herself. So what are we going to do about it? When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion as they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. So they grabbed some of the Christians together and they bring them into the theater. And then several verses later, check out what it records. Then for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Picture that. There's a mob, there's a riot. They get a couple Christians, they drag them to the theater, and then for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Do you get a a feeling for the fervor of their adoration of their goddess Artemis? Now, you have to know that... um, Basically, this, this, this riot was getting so big, they had to move them into a more uh, a bigger kind of public location. So it says they take them to the theater. Now, I don't know if they filled the theater, like it, the theater was filled with people who were angry, or if it was 50% full, or 25% full, or 10% full. But I want to give you a picture of the magnitude of what that would have been like. Here's the theater that these men were dragged into. It seats roughly 25,000 people. So let's just say this is 10% full because the riot got so big they had to take it to a larger facility. Can you imagine that? The crowd, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours again and again. And you're a Christian standing there in the middle while the mob is crying out for justice, your punishment. And you see the temple of the goddess Artemis, which imposes itself upon every citizen. They have the temples, the monuments, the statues, everything. And you're, you know, over there saying, yeah, yeah, but um, the crucified Jewish man from Nazareth is actually true king and king, king of kings and lord of lords. Do you feel the weight of the historical situation? 
Well, the good news is a clerk shows up and he quiets down the crowd. He says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? In other words, an official comes, calms people down, and long story short, Paul gets to leave uh, the area and continue his missionary journeys. But this is the beginning uh, of the bubbling of persecution that will take place in the city of Ephesus. So when you picture this place, you have to picture a place with paganism, 50 plus gods and goddesses, the main one being Artemis. You have to picture the fact that there was immense pluralism. And by pluralism, I mean you could worship any god or goddess that you wanted. That wasn't an issue. You could say, oh yeah, we have this new god. His name's Jesus. They're like, great, we'll build him a temple and worship him too. The issue was you could not say that the God you serve is true God and all other gods are false. So you could worship whatever you want. Just don't go around saying that you are the exclusive holder of truth. It was an exclusivity issue. Leave whatever you want. It's no big deal. Just don't tell me that there's one true path to God. Does this sound familiar? There is also emperor worship. So in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, Asia Minor at this time, there's a, a beginning and a rise of the propaganda of the empire setting up the Caesars to be divine in some sense. So in Ephesus, on a hill, on a massive platform, was a 30-foot statue, nearly 30 feet. And there's debate about whether this is Emperor Domitian, Domitian or his brother Titus, but the point is this. When you walked in there, this massive statue of the royal family looks down at you. And it's communicating, Caesar is Lord here. Caesar is Lord. In addition to emperor worship, there's magic and sorcery. That's the Ephesian grammata. Sorcery, witchcraft, all kinds of things. There is wealth and luxury. The banking system ran through the temple of Artemis. Follow this. The economic system ran through the religious system. They were one and the same. There's also mysticism, people who had secret knowledge to, to commune with this god or goddess. So when you understand all of that, you have to bring it all with you. When you read the words of Jesus to the church that was trying to remain faithful in these circumstances. The words of Jesus to the church of Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among, among the seven golden lampstands. Now first, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. There's, there's a little bit of debate about this, but it's kind of overblown because we don't know exactly, like, what's the angel of this church? Some people would say it's, it's the leadership of the church, it's the pastor of the church, it's the congregation of, as a whole. Some people would say it's the fact that there is an, a literal angel or spiritual being that's been given the assignment of like protection for the the, the church of Ephesus. And it doesn't matter. You can get all into the weeds in the debate. The point is this. Everyone in the church was going to, to hear these words. So even if it was directed to like the leader or the leadership, the point was the entirety of the church of Ephesus was going to hear this. And it's from the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. Now, first and foremost, the seven stars refer to the seven churches who receive letters in the book of Revelation. The first one of them is Ephesus, and they're all located in a region called Asia Minor. So first and foremost, that refers to the churches 
uh, receiving the letters. But as we talked about last week, sometimes revelations, Revelation likes to give like a little dig, a little punch, a little jab to the propaganda of the empire. And it's possible that this is occurring in this case because one of the, the, the kind of symbolic images that the empire used was that of the Caesar or his father or sometimes his son ascending to the stars. And if you ascend to the stars, which are said to be gods and goddesses, then it's like you're taking your rightful place among the gods. This is a coin minted in AD 82 of Caesar's son surrounded by seven stars. It's a way to say that the royal family is divine in some sense, divine in some sense. On the other side of these coins, you read things like Divifilius, which is son of God in Latin. And so there's this, this propaganda we sit among the stars. So what do you think the readers who are in Ephesus who have literal coins where the royal household is surrounded by stars and Christ says, I don't just sit among the stars. I hold the seven stars in my hands. In other words, whatever authorities, kings, rulers, principalities might be out there, whether they physical or spiritual, Christ is the sovereign Lord over them and holds them in his hand. And he walks among the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands are the lights of the church. Churches, like by definition, are supposed to be lights in a dark world. Vocationally, churches worship God and we are to be lights in a dark world. And so there's this idea that the, the, the churches have this lampstand. Okay, now we get to the heart of the letter. It says, I know your works. Now, it's really easy just to go on and read the rest. Like, I know your works, so what's going to happen? Well, check this out. Just stop. Just stop and put yourself in, in like, put yourself in a world where you're the recipient of those words. What if Jesus were to show up to your house and say, I know your works. I know all of them. And he doesn't just like know your works. He, He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. I know everything about you, everything that you've done, every thought in your mind, every desire of your heart. How are you responding? You know what I mean? I, you better call 911. It's about to be a heart attack. You know what I mean? I, I know it all. You know, you're going to look like the kid caught stealing cookies from the cookie jar. Like, dude, I'm busted. And some of you are having like flashbacks already to like fourth grade when you knew the report card was coming home. Dude, I'm in trouble. I am in trouble. But here's the thing. You don't have to imagine. Christ knows your works. He knows your thoughts. He knows your hearts. He knows everything about you inside and out. That is presently true. Now check this out though. Christ says, I know your works, and you think, oh man, they're going to be in trouble. Listen to what he says. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. In other words, I know your works, and you know what? Let me encourage you, let me commend you. You hate evil. You stick to good teaching and good doctrine. You don't follow this, these false apostles that have false teaching. 
And you have to, to imagine, in Ephesus, it would be easy to be led astray. Are you kidding me? You're the one that's this tiny, tiny group who's saying a Jewish man from Galilee was crucified and he's the world's true Lord. Meanwhile, in Ephesus, look at the temples of the gods and goddesses. Look at what Artemis has. There's, a, there's an actual sacred stone that fell from the heavens in that temple. It would be very easy to drift. Very easy to drift. But they're holding fast to the truth. They are a truth-loving, lie-hating type of people. So it's very good. But then the bad news. You know, it's kind of like good news first and then bad news. But I have this against you. Can you imagine if the Lord of glory told you, I have this against you? Seriously. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. You've lost your first love, and Christ tells you what to do. Remember and repent. Remember what it was like when you first loved Jesus. Remember what that was like and return to that. Now, there's a big problem here that, that in the way this is often discussed. Oftentimes when this passage is looked at, something like this is, is communicated. The Ephesians, uh, they had good teaching, they had good doctrine, they were doing everything right on the external, but on the inside their hearts had lost their first love. And, and there might be a hair of truth to that, but, but that's not, it's not as if Jesus is saying, you're doing everything right externally, but your heart is right, so make sure your heart is right. What does he say? What is the direct application for them? To remember and to repent and to what? Do the things they first did. See, in the modern world, we often separate like the state of our heart and external actions. We, make, we, we pretend as if there's this massive difference between the things that we do and what's in our heart. And what do modern people, of course, value most? What's on the heart? I may do all this stuff on the outside that's bad and corrupted, but you have to understand my heart's right. And then we elevate that. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 wait a second. You've lost your first love. Something has gone wrong with the affections. And the answer to that is to return to the things you first did. Because when, when external actions are not there, that's a direct symptom that there's a sickness of the heart. That's how you diagnose a heart that's gone astray is the external actions aren't what they ought to be. So for example, um, when a young man falls in love, uh, does he not do things that he never did before? Does, I mean, does he not, he falls in love and all of a sudden he looks at the world differently. He sees things differently. Like you can have a guy who's the most boring Man, this has got an ounce of any artistic talent in him. But you'll see, well, I'm going to write a poem to this girl. You're so beautiful. I love you. As the sky is blue, I love you. 
you know, he's trying, he's trying. And you know, he's in love. So all of a sudden for the first time when he's at a store, he notices when like the dark chocolate's on sale. Okay, he's going to buy some dark chocolate and write poetry. Like what's happening? Because when the affections of our heart and when, when our will desires something, external actions correspond to the inside. So what Jesus is saying is not like, you guys do everything right on the outside, just fix what's on the inside. He's actually saying, yes, you hate evil, and you're sticking to true doctrine. However, there are good things that you used to do that you no longer do. So return to those things and restore your first love. And then this last line is pretty powerful. If you don't, if you don't do this, if you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstands from its place unless you repent. Christ will remove the light that a church has. Now think about this. Um, Christ's mission for the world will not come to failure or be compromised because a particular church has compromised. Meaning, Christ does not see it as a threat to his mission if he has to take a church out. You know, and the, the reason why this is important is because, especially like in the modern Western, in, American, in the American culture, we can see there's less Christians, churches are falling apart, the, the culture's becoming more and more non-Christian, what are we going to do? There's churches closing, da-da-da. And it's like, the sovereign Lord of creation, he's the one who removes lampstands. So in one sense, be encouraged that no matter what take, is taking place in the world, Christ is going to fulfill his mission. He will have a people and a bride composed of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And just because one church is compromised, it is not a threat to his mission. He will be victorious. So you'd be encouraged in that. But the scary part of it is also, um, <laughs> if a church compromises, Jesus will remove the lampstand, takes away their light. They will have no witness in the world. Back to, so it's like kind of good news, bad news, a little bit more good news. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of, which is in the paradise of God. Now, this is the ending to his letter to the church of Ephesus. So it's, it's, it's very short. But there's some things of incredible importance here in this last, last section. He says, you are doing this good. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Well, who, like, who are the Nicolaitans? We don't know. We, can, we can't be certain. Um, some of the church fathers, so the early church leaders, uh, in the first several hundred years of the church, they traced the Nicolaitans to a false teacher who was a deacon in the early church named Nicholas. So the, Nic- the Nicholas leader has his followers named Nicolaitans. But something else that's interesting that's going on. Uh, the phrase Nicolaitans is composed of two Greek words, similar to the name Nicholas. Um, the word for conquer in Greek is nikao. And you can hear that in Nicolaitans. So you have nikao, combined with the Greek word for people, laos. So nikao and laos makes Nicolaitans. And so laos means people, nikao means conquer. So Nicolaitans means something like uh, the conquering people or the people who are conquered. 
So you have this, and, and Christ says, you hate the works of the conquering people, which I also hate. But you also need to know, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. So you can guess the word for conquer here, it's nikao. So you don't like these nikao laos, these conquering people. However, you must become a person who nikaos, conquers. And if you do, I will grant to you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's something more going on here. There's this, this talk of a tree of life that's in the paradise of God. There is strong evidence to indicate that in the temple of Artemis, the, the, the entirety of the complex, there was a, a garden or a grove. And that's actually quite common for temples in the ancient world. But what we have is evidence that showed there was um, a garden, it had trees, and the reason for this is Artemis herself, her origin story begins in a forest. She's often depicted in the forest, she's depicted with animals. On coins that depicted Artemis, there was like honeybees and sometimes deer associated with this. So when you think Artemis, think of a forest, think of nature, think of fertility, think of gardens, think of trees. And in the temple complex, there's this, this garden. And many times in the ancient world, gardens were walled gardens. They had like protection on all sides. And there's actually some evidence to indicate that they would bring in animals into the garden to sort of artificially recreate a miniature version of a paradise. Because a, a garden that's filled with life and water and animals to the ancient mind is, is paradise. There's also evidence to indicate that if you ran into the, to the temple complex, there was, it was a place of refuge. It was like a sanctuary city. So if you got in trouble and people were after you, you'd at least go there and they couldn't, like in some sense, use vigilante justice and kill you. There was safety, protection, and salvation there. So follow this. Within the temple of Artemis, the complex, there is like a, a garden, a sacred garden that might be filled with literal animals and there's trees. And if you were to go there, you were given salvation, refuge, and security. There's more. Christ says, the, the tree of life which I offer you is in the, the paradise of God. The Greek word for paradise is paradiso, and it is the word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the word garden, as in the Garden of Eden. So when the Gentile world is reading Greek translation of the Bible, they read the beginning story of Adam and Eve, and there is not a garden of God, there is the paradise of God. And the reason for that is what we just discussed. If you were to picture paradise as an ancient person, you would picture a garden. Picture a garden. But don't picture a garden like our gardens, where it's like, here's my habaneros, and here's my jalapenos, and here's these beets. I don't know why I grow them. No one likes them. They're disgusting, you know? Um, you would picture streams and trees and animals. Because if an ancient mind pictures paradise, they picture a garden. So what is John doing? He's writing this to people who live in Ephesus. There is a garden. There are trees. There is a paradise that offers you salvation and protection of the great goddess Artemis. And what he is telling the Ephesian Christians is there is a false garden, a false tree, and a false goddess. Don't you dare fall into the temptation of going to there. You must seek that which is true. 
the true garden, the true paradise, the true tree. On the day that Jesus was crucified, there was a thief that was crucified alongside of him. And he cries out in faith to Jesus and says, remember me. And Jesus tells the one dying alongside of him, today you will be with me in paradise. That is the garden of God. That is the tree of life. Christ goes to the tree of death so that you can eat from the tree of life. And John is saying, don't you dare go to the false garden, the false paradise, the false tree. You must conquer. And if you do, I will grant to you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And that's, how, that's how it ends. That's how the, the, the letter to the Ephesians ends. But I want to return to this idea of, of love. Um, because again, in the modern world, we really separate the things on the inside from our actions on the outside. And the biblical world, the ancient person didn't think like that, and the biblical world doesn't think like that. Christ says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That's like a direct quote. <laughs> not twisting anything. Um, because the, the state of our heart isn't like, there's not a great distance from our external actions. Now, sometimes there is, and things can be incongruent, fine, but on the whole, on the whole, when things on the outside are bad, that is a symptom that maybe something's not right on the inside. And so I want to give you a few um, kind of scenarios so you can think about how love and action have to go together. And if they don't, it's like something doesn't feel right. Okay, here's a scenario. Wife uh, is running some errands and she comes home and her husband meets her at the door. And uh, the husband says, look, we have to talk. We have to talk. Before we say any more, though, I just want to start off by saying this, and this is really important. No matter what I say, no matter what happens, I'm still going to do everything that I've always done. I'm still going to do everything that I've always done. So he says, hey, look, I'm going to I'm still take out the trash. I'm going to still work on the backyard. I'm still going to cook on Fridays. I'm still going to work, and I'm going to work hard to provide for you and the kids, but I need you to know I just, I just don't love you anymore. I don't love you. Now, how does the wife feel in those moments? Like, the actions, the deeds matter, but what is most complete and most whole and the desires of her heart are, I also want your heart. I want you to love me. I don't just want external deeds. I want your heart. I want to know that you love me. Or let's up it. Let's, let's picture a 10-year anniversary. Wife comes home and she opens the door and like the house smells of, of candles and like good food. And right on the table, there's a dozen roses and there's chocolate, there's like dark, there's dark chocolate and roses, and there's food. Like, she's, what's being cooked? This smells great. And the, the husband, man, he's, he did right, man. He, there's scallops for dinner. Scallops are like $42.99 a pound right now, man. <laughs> there's, there's prime rib. That's like $34.99 a pound. I mean, he got the, the beef, 
surf and turf, this is great. And she's just overwhelmed with happiness. And she looks at her husband, looks in the eyes, like you went so above and beyond. Like, why did you do all of this? He's like, you know, it's a 10-year anniversary. It's what you're supposed to do, I guess. You know, it's, it's kind of the obligation when you sign up to do the husband thing, right? Now, um, it is better to do something out of obligation even if you don't feel like it. Like doing things because it's your duty and obligation even if you don't feel good about it is still a good thing. However, it's not the optimal thing. It's not what's best, right? What, what would be best? Why did you do all this? And the husband responds, it's my joy to make you happy. Like, you don't understand. When you're happy, it gives me joy. It's this weird thing. It's like, it's almost like a weird selfishness. I just, I, when I see you fill with joy, it fills me with joy. It's my joy to see you smile. That's why I do it. I love you. You have my heart. This isn't a, a chore. And so, to be clear, um, sometimes in life, all of the, those happy feelings aren't there. And obligation and duty is still a good thing. Trust me. Better to go out and buy the roses and chocolate even if you don't feel like it on your anniversary and do the right thing. It's better than not doing it, but it's not optimal. It's not the ideal. Let me give you another quick example. Different type of situation. Uh, there's a husband who, man, this guy, he's lazy, man. He don't do anything. He don't work. He don't do any of the chores. Uh, Wife comes home, the house is a mess. Takes a shower like once every week. He's just, he's not a, he's just, and the wife is just in tears like, what, what, what are you doing? And he's like, you know I love you, babe. You know I love you. It's like, no, I don't. It doesn't look like it. Yeah, but if you could see my heart, if you could see this right here, you would know I love you. So much love, so much, so much. <laughs> you would say, I, does he? Because what you want is the deeds to match the heart. And so to be clear, doing the right thing, even if you don't feel like it, is really, really important. However, what is optimal and best is for your actions to be aligned with your heart. And what Christ is telling the church of Ephesus is, I know you hate evil, you don't do this bad, you don't do this bad, you don't do this wrong, but you stop doing the good that you used to do. So remember your first love. Remember how it was when love was new. Return to that and he says, do the things you first did. And trust me, sometimes you just have to do the things you first did to kindle the fire of those affections. So Christ says, remember and repent and do the things that you first did. Now, question. Is Christ occupying the first place of your heart? Or has your love grown cold? 
And the way you can examine yourself is, uh, how do I know if my love's grown cold? Well, I can look at my actions and my deeds. Do my deeds demonstrate that my love has gone cold? So it's like a diagnostic test. Is the way I'm living demonstrate that my love has grown, gone cold? Because remember, when, when the couple first falls in love, the dude isn't having to be like, oh, got to write this annoying poem, buy chocolate. It's just like it, 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 ha- it flows from the source of love. It's just like there. And sometimes not in life, not everything's a honeymoon stage. So it's not like every day you're just, I delight in writing her poems. You just do the right thing. But what you want to strive for is actions that match the internal, external and internal, left foot, right foot, walking side by side. So there's a word for um, every type of Christian in the room. Question for those of you who have been a Christian a long time. Has your love grown cold? If so, Christ gives you direct application. He says, remember. Remember what it was like. Do you remember what it was first like? For those of you who became Christians like in your teenage years or adult years, do you remember what it was like when, when you first knew Christ? Do you remember your prayers? Do you remember your worship? Do you remember how you sang? Remember how sometimes during out, throughout the day you would just say, I love you, Lord. I, I, when was the last time just randomly throughout your day you just said, God, I, I, lo- I love you. I love you so much. Thank you. You've been so good to me. When was the last time you told them you loved them? And so we can ask ourselves, am I drifting? Am I drifting? Have I drifted? And then maybe for some of you, you can't remember that time of your first love because you grew up Christian. You've been a Christian your whole life. You can still ask yourself, like, are my external deeds, is the way I'm living, drifting from where I once was? And if so, remember and repent and do the things you first did. It's pretty straightforward and simple. Like, just go back and, how about this? We just start with doing the things we first did. And then a quick word to maybe those of you who are brand new Christians. You're going like, I haven't lost my first love, man. I just found it last week. It's great. None of this applies. It's cool. You know, the statues and stuff you showed, great. But I haven't grown cold. Like, I just want to say this. Um, sometimes, especially at, every church has different strengths and weaknesses, but especially at a church like this where it's like, you know, we value like theology and, and deep teaching. It's like your first Sunday, you learned about a second person plural or something like that in Greek. Um, it can, it can feel easy. It can real be real easy to feel like I'm so far from where I should be. Everyone knows more than me. Um, and you feel like there's nothing to contribute. Let me, let me just say like, we, if you are a new Christian, we need you more than you understand. We are in desperate need of you. What, what new Christians do is they sort of shame old Christians. And they remind us of what our first love ought to look like. Do you know what I'm saying? When there's a new Christian, 
They're excited to talk about the Bible and some, something that they learned or I was praying and this happened. And sometimes you could be a Christian so long you start doing stuff like this. Say there's this massive problem and you begin to start to worry about it and you're giving it time and thought and it's, that, that monster is so big, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Well, the new Christian is like, your father has that. Your father is in control. He loves you, doesn't he? Doesn't he love us? And you could be like, yeah, they're kind of cheesy because they're just happy-go-lucky. He loves us, right? No, they shame the pride in us. Your father loves you. He's for you, not against you. And so that, that new Christian is, is like, it's contagious. It reminds us of what we ought to look like, how we ought to be. Lord, I love you. I love you. You're my father. I love you. And then there's something else they do where it's real contagious. Um, okay, so quick example. Pick, uh, usually there's peer groups, right? And let's picture a peer group who's all in their early 20s. And there's like a group of, of 16 people, so it makes eight couples. And these eight couples hang out all the time, um, and they have no kids, but eventually one of the couple breaks the pattern. They have the first kid. And they bring, they bring it over to the hangout like they always do. It's Memorial Day, you're hanging out barbecuing, and now there's, there's this baby. And at first, everyone's like, mm, brought the baby, it's crying. I bet they're going to have to leave early and go put the baby down. But then after a couple, couple times, what happens? Hey, I think we need to have a baby. You know what I'm talking about? Watch young peer groups. It's contagious. And then another baby, and then another baby, and then another baby. And then people who said, I think we're done, have another baby. And it's like the new life can generate energy within a, in a group. That's what new Christians do. That's what baby Christians do. They remind you of your first love, and they remind you of your baptism, and they remind you of all the good things. And then you want to see more Christians, so you evangelize more, and you tell your friends about Jesus because you're reminded of the preciousness of new life in Christ. So no matter where you're at today, Christ has a word for you. Here's the thing. It's very easy to drift in our culture. It's very easy to compromise. Very easy. No one wakes up and says, I want to betray Christ. No one wakes up and says, I, I, I want to fall away from my faith. But a slow love of the world over time will cause you to drift. And give it one year, two years, five years, ten years. And then you will look back at your life and you won't believe the person that you've become. If the person from ten years ago saw how complacent you've been, they wouldn't, be, they wouldn't even be able to understand it. And so you can't drift. Don't compromise. Don't become complacent. If you have... The application for today is pretty straightforward. Remember and repent and return to the things you first did. Christ says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. This world has false gardens, false trees, false gods, false goddesses, false religions, false promises. And Christ says, Come to me. If you desire life and life abundant, come to me. Don't fall for the false. Come to that which is true. And Christ dies on a tree of death so that you might have the tree of life. So if you feel that you've become complacent, remember, repent, 
do the things you first did. Let's stand as we take communion.